because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. On this week's episode, we have a really interesting guest, Craig Rucker, who is executive director of CFACT, the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. Uh, you might recognize the name. I've spoken for their college group, CFACT Collegians, uh, probably a dozen times now. So they've been a they've been a friend of CIP uh, really since since the beginning. Uh, Bill Gillis, who's the director of CIP uh, Collegians, is a very good friend of CIP. Anyway, um, one of the things CFAC does that most organizations don't, including the CIP doesn't, is they travel internationally to many of the conferences where big decisions or big declarations about energy and environmental issues are made, and they both report on those conferences and they get involved in them. So in this discussion, you're going to learn a lot about an aspect of energy and environmental issues that we don't hear about that much, which is how the international scene works and how it shapes thinking and political policy here. And Craig has some really interesting stories and some really good insights, so it's going to be a great show. So um, we'll have Craig on the other side, and then make sure to stay on at the end uh, because we have a big announcement about an event on February 17th. All right, see you on the other side. All right, we're here with Craig Rucker, Executive Director of CFACT. Craig, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be on. All right. So uh, the reason I wanted you on is because uh, one one interesting thing about CFACT, which some of the audience knows uh, I've, I've worked with and spoken uh, for before, which has been a lot of fun, um, is that they like to go on the ground. They like to go on location to many of these different international summits that most of us, myself included, comment on uh, from afar. And so I thought it'd be really neat to hear how uh, the summit in uh, Doha, Qatar went, where Craig and other CFACT people were, um, and get really an in-depth look at, at what it's actually like, what they learned, and, and what they did. So, Craig, can you uh, just give us an overview of what the event you went to was, first of all? Yes, the Doha uh, <clears throat> meeting of the United Nations is part of an ongoing uh, uh, meeting of what they call the Conference of the Parties. These were established dating back to 1992, when the UN uh, first signed a global convention on climate change. And as part of that agreement, every year they get together, and it's usually not in Toledo or Cleveland, but in some sort of exotic place like uh, Doha, or it could be in uh, Bali, Indonesia, or it could be in Cancun, Mexico, or Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, they pick some pretty um, sexy areas to go into to make these uh, conferences. Last year's in December was in Doha, and uh, it's for the purpose really of trying to implement this global convention on climate change, which later turned into the Kyoto Protocol, and uh, drum up support for a glo global action on climate issues. So CVAC's been going to these really since um, 1997 was our first uh, one right in Kyoto when this first uh, came on the scene. And we've been more or less going to them every year since. Uh, of course, our position at going to these things is that uh, climate change is largely overrated and uh, that in fact much of the uh, things that Al Gore and others have said about impending climactic doom are a myth and we'll bring scientists there, we'll uh, bring some college students, we'll do various things to try and draw attention to what we've been labeled as skeptics of the climate change movement. 
So what what are the numbers at an organ at an event like this? How many how many people are there, and and what and how do they subdivide? Like how many are students? How many are delegates, etc. Well, I would say in terms of official delegates, they, they represent 192 countries, generally speaking. And again, that varies from conference to conference. Um, there would be approximately, and, and you know, it just depends on how big the meeting is. Some of them are fairly high profile, like in 2009 in Copenhagen, which was the uh, Greens thought they had the best chance for extending the Kyoto Treaty. There were probably close to 15 to 20,000 delegates at these at this conference. Um this particular one would have been about probably about 5,000. So the numbers vary. Um, of those, the vast majority are NGOs or non-state uh, participants, and they probably comprise at least three quarters of the people in attendance at these things. Now, when you're when you're planning to go to these things, what do you expect to be the views of most of the the people, or is there is there a wide range? <laughs> well, there isn't a wide range. Uh, we're one of the few, if not the only one, that uh, organization in Washington that has routinely gone to these conferences. There are a handful of us from other organizations that occasionally go, um, but I would say it's pretty much unanimity of opinion. Uh, starting back in '97, the the if you could even go back to Al Gore's book, which is interesting, the um, uh, one that he wrote in 1991 before he uh, became. Uh, vice Earth, president earth in the balance earth in the balance right he said even at that time 98 percent of all scientists were in agreement that climate change was a reality which is kind of interesting because of course climate change never even approached the radar screen until 1988 when hansen from nasa said that he was 99 percent certain that climate change was in agreement so within four short years uh he basically said every scientist in the world agrees that it's a major problem and we need international action and they've really operated along that lines ever since they kind of drummed up a consensus before they even knew the science now it's turning out that more and more scientists are starting to question it uh, mark morano who's on our climate depot uh website uh, which is the foremost authority website pretty much in terms of traffic and uh, certainly has garnered a lot of attention from our adversaries. Uh, he reports over a thousand scientists so far that he's chronicled that have disagreed with the consensus, which is important because the UN is only really championing some 2,000 scientists in support of their position, um, which make up the IPCC. And of those 2,000 that they uh, say champion what they're doing, probably only 400 or so are true climate scientists. So they don't have the consensus that they claim, but at these conferences, you could kind of look at them almost like NRA events or anything of that sort, where it's just a bunch of the faithful who believe in climate change show up to these things and kind of rah-rah um, the position that action needs to be changed. And then there's a few people on the outside like us, um, you know, who are small in number, but uh, we impact or throw above our weight at these conferences who try to, you know, bring out the other side. Now you mentioned that that you you might be the only group that does this uh, consistently, and of course every group has different options as to how to use its resources. Why is this something that's that is so important for you to do year in and year out? Well, I think that, and we noticed this actually back when CFAC was started in 1985. We followed the environment, and our position is always as an organization to try to champion a free market alternative to groups like Greenpeace, the Sierra Club, and the like. And we were looking at where many of the issues that were coming up had their genesis, and a lot of them did at the United Nations. They had a United Nations conference on sustainable development, uh, first in 1972 in Vancouver, then they had the Earth Summit in 1992. They more recently had a summit in 2012 in Rio, which we attended. 
uh, out of these conferences come all the different issues ranging from biodiversity to global warming to desertification and all these different things. So we felt in order to get a, a grasp of this thing, we needed to start participating in these conferences and seeing what's what's going on. So our first foray into this was in 1992 at the Earth Summit. when We sent the late Dr. Dixie Lee Ray. Uh, she wasn't late at the time, of course, but the former governor of Washington to represent CFACT at this meeting. Uh, she was broadcast on Rush Limbaugh's show, for those of you who are old enough to remember, and gave daily updates there. Uh, she was on CNN and a bunch of other things. But we gathered a lot of information at that and felt it was important just in terms of information and knowledge of what the other side is doing to start attending these things. And uh, we share this, of course. We belong to several coalitions in Washington and uh, people who are skeptical of climate science and some of the alarms that Greenpeace, Sierra Club, and others are making. And we do gather and coalesce. And really, that's been our niche to go there for intelligence purposes, to uh, showcase science on the other side, and to speak out for those who disagree with uh, much of the radical green agenda. And, uh, you know, our resources on our side are far more limited than what the uh, left has. Uh, so when you work with organizations like the Competitive Enterprise Institute or um, Cato Institute or others, you know, we join resources and, and fight our different battles. But, you know, I think much like the other side does, you can't cover everything at once. So we kind of partition out where we can uh, work best and uh, help each other as we can. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by what you said about studying the landscape back in the mid-80s and, and seeing how much comes out of the UN. Could you describe a bit the the causal chain or how, how stuff from the UN filters down? Because it's not necessarily intuitive to me that particularly in the US, the UN would have such a role in shaping thought. Well, yeah. In fact, uh, what we found even back then, and it started with the acid rain issue, the ozone depletion issue, uh, People who are old enough to remember the, the Montreal Protocol in 1987, uh, we followed the CFC issue and we had some concerns about that, but it seemed to be driven at the uh, UN level uh, how things were going. This whole idea of uh, think globally but act locally on the other side is something they really believe. Uh, the UN has a, uh, an entity and it changes names every few years, but it's called the United Nations Environment Program, or UNEP. And uh, a lot of the uh, personnel that uh, house these are from leading environmental organizations. A lot of the uh, uh, press releases they put out chime the environmental mantra, kind of, of whatever the cause du jour is. Uh, and a lot of what they try to codify is an international treaty. Uh, for example, they wanted to move on uh, ozone depletion, so they had the International Montreal Protocol that was brought up. And that was 1987. A year later, they're calling for international action on climate change. And they put together the World Meteorological Organization and uh, created the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And they became the authority, not just in the United States, but globally, on this entire issue. And it was kind of said that if the United States was to question this, we were questioning the international community, and these people were put up as almost gods, uh, and to challenge them would be, you know, something that small nation states shouldn't really consider doing. Well, we wanted to go and see what these, go you know, so-called gods were like. We started sending delegates to them, finding out that they were real people, and uh, then we started uh, finding out a little bit more about them, and now... To this day in Doha, we start having fun with them. You'll see them a lot of times in our videos that we produce at these conference sites where we kind of do some silly things with them to try to take them down off their pedestal. So, you know, that would be kind of how we 
entered into it in looking at the treaties and the negotiations that were going on at the time, realizing that the UN was the focal point of the Greens and that somebody had to be active there. That is, this is just really, I'm going to ask about the specific conference, but you're intriguing me with this this angle. So I'm going to ask one more question on it, which is there's this there's a standard narrative that I think is true about how in the U.S. the environmentalist movement really arose a lot out of leftists who had, A, failed, like it was recognized that socialism was a failure, so they needed a new way to attack capitalism, and B, the Vietnam War was over, so they needed a way to attack the U.S. in one form or another, and this was this became the cause. I've seen a lot of historical documentation. I'm curious, though, around the world, is it a similar story that with the failure of communism around the world, that that this green movement, you know, which had at least been discredited in Germany, where it was a you know a leading Nazi supporter, or and vice versa. I'm curious how what you know about how it arose as a worldwide, not just U.S. phenomenon. Well, CFAC does maintain a CFAC Europe chapter. Um, so I do deal with people, and interestingly, the guy who heads that is a guy named Holger Tuz, Dr. Holger Tuz, who was formerly from East Germany. And uh, he makes the claim, as does Vaclav Klaus, uh, the f- president of Czechoslovakia, that in fact, uh, much of what they faced in the communist movement uh, in fighting it behind the Iron Curtain uh, are the same folks that are advancing this green agenda. Toward that end, uh, Vakilov Klaus actually published a book about that. Others have made the uh, case. I know James Dellingpole in the UK has wrote things and he calls them watermelons, which that they're green on the outside, but red on the inside. It's been our observation also, and again, for those of us old to remember, um, back in the old Soviet Union days that a lot of these uh, more liberal professors who were very big on you know, Che Guevara and, you know, worldwide socialism became all of a sudden environmental proponents, you know, and overnight you had running like Barry Commoner, for example, who was popular in the uh, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, even ran for president against Ronald Reagan as a Socialist Party candidate, became a leading spokesman for Greenpeace uh, right afterwards. So, you know, there clearly was, as the Iron Curtain fell, which was in that 88 to 92 time frame, Right when these global conferences for the United Nations started uh, emerging in more rapidity, that uh, you had a lot of uh, people that were uh, disenfranchised by the fact the Soviet Union had fell and uh, interestingly found a home in the environment. I won't take it further than that. Uh, you know, even assuming that they had uh, changed their motives, maybe some of them are um, uh, depressed over the fact that their previous ideas didn't come to fruition through the Soviet Union or through communism and found a home in the environment and saw that as a way. I don't know. I'm not going to judge their motives. All I do know is that much of what is being championed by today's environmental movement is global. It is command and control, and it is not that much different than what many of these people advanced prior to the, you know, the decade of the environment, which was supposedly the 90s. All right, so let's let's fast forward to the present. You have this establishment, as it were, you know, the sort of anti-energy equivalent of the NRA, I would call it. But um, you know, you've got so CFAC is going to this conference. You get off the plane in Doha. What's what's it like there? I mean, what's the conference area like? Well, I, I would first and foremost give the UN high credit for you know, posh accommodations. It's always uh, <laughs> always in a very nice part of town and uh, the best hotels, best restaurant area. And, uh, you know, they, they certainly 
don't hold anything back when it comes to treating their delegates to the finest cuisine. Now, this is intriguing coming from a entity that says that we need sustainable development, that people are consuming too much and we need to draw back on our resources. So that always strikes us as kind of hypocritical. And we made videos along that line where we'll oftentimes uh, videotape just how extravagant some of these conferences are uh, and how that meshes with their words about people living more austere with less energy and you know, less children and things of that sort. But you go into the conference and really it's uh, it's interesting. They usually have a section of the conference that is designated for the NGOs, and that could really be a zoo. Uh, you'll see uh, all sorts of organizations, some fairly uh, business-like, and uh, some are businesses and corporations and others that are trying credentials. Others are from very radical environmental groups. Uh, so you have this kind of hodgepodge of you know, centrist to left to radical left, um, all showcasing their various ideas. And then you have the official state section, which is a plenary session where you can walk in, uh, usually during some of the meetings, and witness what the official state delegations are saying. Occasionally, organizations like ours, NGOs, are allowed to speak at these. I've done so on a couple of occasions, and we've had other CFAC people do the same. Uh, but typically, that's off, you know, that's off out of bounds for us to be able to participate in. They also have a lot of side room and negotiations going on in places that only state officials can get into and certain quote unquote accredited NGOs like Greenpeace, if the nation state invites them. Um, so, you know, those are obviously uh, where a lot of the high level negotiations go on. Uh, but I would say a lot of it is, uh, you know, you can interact with the delegates from the countries uh, as you walk the halls. Uh, outside of these restricted areas or in the NGO area. Um, and you could just have frank conversations with them. It's generally my experience. You have two categories of people there. You have the true believers, which are the NGOs and uh, the people affiliated with them, um, scientists and others that maybe they bring to the conference. But then you also have the state delegates and they vary, usually the Western Europeans, Americans presently, some Australian delegates or Canadians. Um, may be tied in with the green agenda and maybe ones who are sympathetic to what Greenpeace and others are saying. But most of the third world delegates, those that are from other parts of the world, you know, I think they're there for um, because they have to be. And a good many of them are not true believers, uh, but they're looking at these conferences to see what they can get out of them that would benefit their country. I mean, if they're it seems like in, in a certain sense, though, they, they both are coming in with an agenda. So, I mean, with someone who's coming from 350.org is not going to like be persuaded by some scientific or economic fact and go back and, you know, report to Bill McKibben that he, you know, decided to support capitalism. Um, but it seems like what, I mean, what's the latitude of the delegate from, you know, Indonesia or something like that, where... I mean, presumably their goals are set in advance and thus the positions, or maybe maybe I'm missing something. Yes, no, I, I think that what you, what you find curious about there is uh, a lot of them are looking to this to see what they can get out of the treaty. And uh, when you saw the original Kyoto Protocol, uh, of the 180 so nations that all that signed and ratified the treaty, there were only requirements from about 30 or 40 of them that actually had to do something, which is to either give away money or to restrict their own emissions of carbon dioxide. About 130 of them had no such requirements. Their reason for signing the treaty was that they were the beneficiaries. They were receiving money from the West, the other 30 or 40 percent that were required to actually pay out under these things. So, you know, if you put yourself in the case of um, Argentina, 
uh, which signed on, had no emissions cuts it had to do, but for planting a few trees in Patagonia could make several, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for doing that. You know, they're all for this treaty uh, based on what they can get out of it. You know, so that, that's what you find with a lot of them. They want to make sure that they get their cut. So most of the developing nations are interested in this climate fund. Um, and that was a lot of the negotiation in Doha. There's $100 billion that were pledged, uh, supposed to move up. Some wanted $500 billion. Um, but there's at least $100 billion of monies that can be doled out. So whenever you have a collection of $100 billion coming from the West that is going to be going principally to developing countries, yeah, there's a, a lot of interest in the part of those developing countries to get some of that loot. Um of course, there are countries that don't want to pay into that as much, and including the United States, which is kind of interesting. Barack Obama, was, despite his rhetoric for being pro-green, uh, wanted these commitments to not take place until after he was president, Some starting around somewhere around 2020 is when he wanted to start paying out for most of this. Um, and of course, that made some of the developing countries angry. They want the money now. Uh, so, you know, there's that going on. And... Uh, that's why I say that I do think that most of the countries that are there are trying to get something out of it in the West. I think it's political points. Uh, Barack Obama wants to be seen as green. A lot of the liberals in Europe want to be seen as green. So by participating in these conferences, they can show their green credentials and that helps them get reelected. And the part of the developing world is just to see what money they can get out of it. So um, so many things that, that come to mind with just that. I, let me just ask this. What is how how are these discussions taking place like is it because i have this image in mind of the un delegates in the james bond uh movie so i'm just curious what is how how are these things being argued because you have you have dozens and dozens and dozens of countries represented in here i mean demanding this enormous in my view completely unearned wealth transfer how, how does this look like what's the scene well i would there's the public scene which if you look at the actual plenary session, and that's what you can actually tune into if you uh, wanted to on your internet, uh, the unfccc.org, and look at what they're talking about, you'll see a lot of grandstanding, all the nations standing up there talking about how their island nation is going to sink or how their nation's going to be turned into a desert and it's all part of the United States and you know all the fault of the united states and uh china saying that uh, you guys have polluted and improved your economies for hundreds of years and we should have that same privilege and uh you know but you'll all see them in unanimity talking about the problems of climate change uh but the real negotiations in the back rooms is where that's going on and there's where people probably speak more frankly from what we hear we had a little more insight into this with the former administration under the Bush people than we do with the uh, current administration with Obama. But it's in those particular negotiations that you'll hear more of the um, wrangling over who gets what and how and a little more frank talk. So, you know, part of us going to these particular conventions is to talk to delegates to find out what's going on in those back rooms and also to report to the American people. And in some cases, we can do it quite effectively. I'll give you an example. And, and uh, not this latest one in Doha, but the year before in South Africa, uh, there was a conference in uh, Durban. And we got wind the day before I was heading back, which was the final day of the conference, that the uh, some delegates, radical Greens, had somehow stuck into the treaty the creation of a world climate court. Uh, to which would then be able to convict nations of exceeding their carbon emissions and there would be penalties paid. And uh, they actually were going to give rights to Mother Earth, whatever that entailed. Well, when uh, Lord Moncton found this out, we immediately 
got word out to um, our various media sources, including through Mark Morano, and that made you know made it into Drudge, made it into Fox News, made it onto a lot of American networks and international networks. Interestingly, the next day, the UN said, "Oh well, we just put that in the treaty because we didn't really mean it, and uh, we're withdrawing it from the treaty," and they did. Uh, so had we not been there to shine that on, you know, my, there's an even bet on whether or not that would have remained in the treaty, but by us going there and shining the light of truth on that, it kind of, uh, made it, put it in the public spotlight it embarrassed them. And they did withdraw from the, uh, you know, take that out of their particular agreement. So that's one of the ways in which an organization like ours can be effective in going there and making a difference. Now, was this something that that you learned from one of these back rooms, or is this something out in the open? Uh, I almost feel like I could say I could neither confirm nor deny that statement, but uh, <laughs> let's put okay. Lord Moncton has his sources, and uh, we were able to get a uh, draft document that was uh, not public information. Well, that, I mean, how corrupt is that, that they... I mean, that this kind of thing can be hidden for that law. I mean, this is supposedly, you know, representing all of us. The idea that it would just be sprung on us and that you have no access to the process seems just completely Well, and that was, that was a big part of what we did in Doha. One of the things that uh, we held a press conference and routinely um, uh, Senator James Inhofe of Oklahoma, we usually gives a videotape message and entrust CFAC to play this message at the uh, conference. And it's usually fairly well attended with people in the media and we field questions. And uh, at this particular press conference, we had with us Kathy Adams from Eagle Forum, who uh, has been following these with us for some 20 years. That's one of the few organizations that actually does go to these fairly routinely. And uh, she made it a point in that press conference to say how much is going on behind closed doors. They're, they're really starting to, and beginning, I would say, in Do- um, in Doha to limit the access of NGOs like ours to being able to find out what's going on behind the scenes. And I think that is because of the effectiveness of groups like ours and others that have been able to shine the light of truth on this and uh, prevent them from moving forward. I mean, let's not forget the Kyoto Protocol was never ratified by the United States. It was signed by President Clinton, but our, con- our Senate never ratified it. And uh, they aren't forgetting that. So they know that we have been able to stop that by virtue of, uh, you know, getting the information out there and not putting the, giving the uh, other side enough public support to put it through. And similarly, they're nervous. Right now, uh, Kyoto has expired as of 2012. <clears throat> they did not, there are some 30 nations or so that are going to continue with Kyoto mandates, even though the treaty is not in force, but they've just agreed to continue it. That happened in Doha, but the remainder of the nations are not going to do that. Uh, They're hoping to get another treaty in place by Paris in 2015 that could take effect by 2020. But again, these are long-term plans, and our hope is, is that by continuing to go to these conferences, we can prevent that from even happening, especially as the science is now coming around, showing more and more of what the Greens are saying just never happened. I mean... I think sometimes people see this as just a, you know, just as a scientific dispute and, and collecting scientific facts on either side. Um, but there's, I mean, what the UN is proposing as its sort of consensus document is so amazingly bad in terms of 80% cut in you know, fossil fuel use. What do people say if you raise this to them, like this, how much this would actually just ruin life on well, you know, economic and personal level. I'm just curious how they can keep a straight face. Well, exactly. And in fact, uh, we have a living real world example out there in Europe. 
uh, Europe actually went along with Kyoto and uh, ratified, signed it, and the whole like, and they've moved on trying to limit their fossil fuels. They have a uh, they're a world leader in use of renewable energy, and it's destroyed their economies. You have Spain with 20-plus unemployment. Um, Bjorn Lomborg, just today, as a matter of fact, posted uh, an interesting chart which showed all the European countries just about that are signed on board Kyoto and just how much greater uh, they're paying uh, for their electricity parts prices per kilowatt hour. Places like Germany, Spain, uh, Italy, all these places that have invested tremendous sums in solar and wind energy and how energy poor their consumers have been. There are people actually freezing to death, uh, elderly people who can't pay their electric bills in England as a result of these sort of Kyoto mandates where they're cutting back on their fossil fuel use and moving to renewable energy. Uh, jobs, unemployment, uh, you know, heavy industries not able to uh, put up with the uh, unreliable energy infrastructure moving to China. Uh, they've got it all in Europe. And, uh, you know, that should provide us a lot of caution to trying to implement that here in the United States. We've been spared a lot of that. As bad as our economy has been, it could be a lot worse if we had signed on to Kyoto. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of state initiatives, renewable energy initiatives and other things are, are coming on over here. And, and some states are starting to suffer from that as well. So, uh, you know, hopefully this fracking revolution, uh, new offshore, you know, drilling oil from Canada will spare us a lot of what the uh, Europeans have already experienced. Uh, so if, if, if you confront someone with this information, you know, your average delegate or person even visiting, uh, because it's, it's, I mean, you, you, as you pointed out, the, the damage so far is unambiguous and they've done a tiny, tiny fraction of what this mandates that we do. Yeah. I mean, what, what do they have to say about that in terms of what that would mean for life? Well, a lot of the people who are coming over from the European countries where, which, where the damage is being done are representing the governments that impose these. So they're, <laughs> they're trying to, um, they're not necessarily go going to be in a position to be aghast by it. They're more defensive in saying they're doing the right thing by harming their people, you know, for some imaginary, Armageddon like global warming. But you look at the um, uh, what their actions are, you'll see a lot of them are backtracking. Take Germany, for example, which um, right now is in the process, the Merkel government of uh, some 20 new coal plants, as I read the other day, are coming online. Uh, they are moving forward with fracking in a big way in England. Uh, so they are backtracking a little bit from uh, what they did before. As far as the developing world goes, they don't have to be convinced. I think most of them see what's going on in Europe and to a lesser extent in the United States and other places, Japan, of course, their economy has been hurting for a long time, um, and they don't want to do that. So they've exempted themselves. Uh, they're not looking to put any sort of Kyoto mandates on their use of fossil fuels. They only want to strap the West. And China, to its credit, um, I had an opportunity to talk on Chinese TV while I was in Doha. Uh, I praised China. I said, that, you know, they've done the heavy lifting on this one because by not signing on, they are now the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Uh, they provide <laughs> the perfect excuse for the United States not to do so as well. So, uh, you know, I, I think China sees that uh, there, this could be used as an economic uh, tool by strapping the West with Kyoto mandates. Of course, they know that their heavy industries will move to China. Uh, they have adamantly refused to uh, bind their emissions. And, uh, you know, while holding open the prospect that maybe 20 years or 30 years they might do so. 
Although it was interesting, I talked to one Chinese delegate a while back and uh, asked them, you know, I said, you guys are called a developing country, but you know, you're now one of the world's largest economies. You guys uh, emit more uh, carbon dioxide emissions in the United States. Uh, when do you see yourselves not being a developing economy? Is it 10 years ago? No. 20 years? No. In fact, their official answer back to me and to the delegates that were with us was, we don't see ourselves ever not being a developing country. So they don't ever perceive the time will come when they have to limit their fossil fuel emissions. Well, good for them um, in terms of having a healthy attitude. I wonder, I mean, it's it's this bizarro world because they essentially say, I mean, the UN is essentially say, let's commit global suicide. And yet in practice, they don't really commit to anything. And it just seems like people, the part of this whole racket is that people know in some form, this is not going to happen, like the ultimate thing. And so they can propose suicide, but they kind of know, they know they're not going to commit suicide, but that they can get the US to partially commit suicide and steal some of our money. And that's really what it comes down to is money. Uh, I believe a lot of the uh, people that are involved in this, there are people who have a lot invested in carbon trading, including Al Gore himself, who said would become a carbon billionaire, although he's made some good money on fossil fuels lately with the uh, sale to Al Jazeera. Uh, which we call Al Gorezira. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's also, I understand, just by virtue of his position on Apple, just uh, traded in, what was it, $414,000 he had to spend to get $29 million worth of stock. So in the last week, he's made about $130 million. So he's done pretty well. But of course, just in, in addition to that, there are a lot of people who have a vested interest in the whole carbon trading market. And uh, the ETS system, the emissions trading system that exists in Europe, you know, there's a lot of people who have a lot of uh, money banking on that. And uh, I don't think they want to see Kyoto go away because if Kyoto goes away and this whole emissions trading scheme goes down the tubes and those who have invested in this will lose a lot of money. So they have a, in the developed world and particularly in Europe, there's a real interest in seeing some extension of Kyoto or a new treaty just based on that alone. The developing world wants to continue with a uh, global warming treaty because they see that $100 billion of uh, money that they might be able to tap into. An interesting development in Doha was that uh, they now have um, what you, uh, they're now going to make the uh, West pay for some of these natural disasters that occur in the developing nations out of this climate fund. Uh, so, for example, if uh, there is a big tsunami or, or a flood or a hurricane that hits Thailand, uh, they will try to, scientists, I guess, say that uh, this is caused by global warming and the United States, you know, as a global emitter of fossil fuels is 6% responsible or 25% responsible for this tidal wave coming in. Uh, therefore, they should pay 25% toward the, uh, you know, damage inflicted by this hurricane on Thailand. Uh, am I making sense to you on how they're doing that? But that's, you know, that's a type of preposterous outline. They're trying to uh, and of course, if you're a developing country, you like this because any hurricane or tornado that wipes out part of your land, you could say, you know, the United States is 25% responsible. Give us 25% of the damage money to be able to recover from this hurricane because that's how much fossil fuels you put out and your contribution to the, you know, the damaging hurricane that was caused by global warming. I, I don't even know how you can like not just scream at such a thing though i mean the this one thing that's just occurring to me that i don't think was prominent enough in my mind is just how corrupt the un is i mean i knew that obviously and, and in so many ways but that that it's fundamental corruption of just equating every country in the world morally is allowing this 
despicable spectacle of countries that should be, you know, copying our constitution and trying to actually learn how to industrialize and, you know, create a good life for their people and protect individual rights are instead making us the villain and just trying to steal a bunch of money that will allegedly protect them from, you know, a typhoon when they're, they still like can't get their act together to build a normal house. I would agree with you, Alex, but I will make the comment is, are the, uh, you know, and I, I, I defend the developing world to this degree is that are the, are the ones who are being stupid in this case, them for trying to take the money or us, you know, creating this climate fund and offering it to them. You know, I mean, to, to a large extent, I don't think that they would be demanding it if it weren't for scientists in the West, and you know, coming up with this cockabamie global warming theory and saying that we, you know, owe this to the developing countries. You know, it wasn't that they came forward and created it. It's that we're offering it. And of course, they're coming. So, you know, to a large degree, I think that uh, in my discussions, and we do a lot of work in places like Uganda and Mexico and others with uh, real work. Most of the people, you know, they're no different than they are in the United States. They're hardworking. They want to. Uh, create an enterprise. They believe in hard work and trying to get ahead. And I think they're being undermined by these Western liberals who come into these countries and offer them welfare and and try to uh, get them off the, you know, saying you can plant a bunch of forests and not chop down any of the trees and we'll use it for carbon sequestration. You know, that, that's the type of goofy thing you find out. I actually had a person from Norway, an environmental minister from Norway, as I was going to uh, Doha, say that uh, with one of our plantation projects, which we're working on sustainable agriculture in Uganda, say she was aghast at the fact we were teaching people how to do crop rotation, chop down the trees, make a profit on it without any government money, and, uh, you know, and do so in a sustainable manner that doesn't hurt the ecology, but they can make a profit and and use capitalism to better their lives. Her opinion was that, you know, instead of chopping down the trees, why don't you come to Norway and we'll give you money just to not chop any of them down. And uh, that was her solution for getting them out of poverty. I said, well, we would never take the money from the government. First off, if I was a Norwegian, I'd be aghast that you even offered that. But secondly, you know, what are you teaching the people that they should do? The only reason they won't chop the trees down is because you're getting, giving them government money. They sit around and do nothing. So it's a, it's a, it, that's the type of thing that the West is offering. And to a large degree, I think the developing country, insofar as they're taking what they're being offered, you know, it's, it's shameful, but it's more shameful that we're offering it to begin with, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And I think even, even um, in another aspect of it is just intellectually that it's really that we've set the tone by instead of we should be promoting ourselves as, as this is, you know, we are the country to emulate doesn't mean we're going to get involved in all your affairs necessarily but but you know we we have this amazing system and it makes possible a better life and everyone should uh pursue a better life and part of the way the un is set up is just no no nothing is better than anything else you know it was set up soviet union is just as good as the u.s they're just different ways you know one is a bloodbath one is a cornucopia who cares um that whole the whole moral subjectivism of it just plays out in so many ways and so in part there's just this imperative for the world to learn from the example of the united states and to have proper governments and ultimately it's the west's fault i think by telling people no you don't have to do that your own culture is good and they regard the west the rest of the world in effect as a you know as sort of a museum of suffering for us to watch and to to tell them yeah keep it that way because we want to look at you in whatever your state happens to be you know we improved our culture but you shouldn't improve yours and then the guilty ones will say no we're anything that's wrong is our fault so 
we'll give you a hundred billion dollars and yep you, you, know. you hit that on the head but you know the cool thing is is when you get to these developing countries and you meet the man on the street or woman on the street i don't necessarily think their leaders reflect a lot of times their views of the average person on the street i think most people intuitively understand that hard work brings result uh that you need to take care of your family and for your children and that's kind of universal i think it's these uh people a lot of times that attend these un meetings they're often taken from universities in these countries um and I don't know as though they necessarily, when they speak, they're reflective of what the uh, grassroots, the people, working people of that country necessarily believe. So we sometimes get a filter or a wrong image of uh, what what uh, what is actually out there. I mean, you get these impressions a lot of times that uh, everybody believes in global warming. Global warming is a non-issue to most people who are in the developing world who only care about feeding their family. And you'd be surprised at how many have no clue what it even is. So... You know, this idea that the whole world's upset, calling for action, and that poor people in the developing country are just alarmed by this because they know it's going to flood their country if they're in an island or their rainforests are going to get burnt up and there's going to be spreading desert disease, mayhem. You know, a lot of that's nonsense. And I think that's, that's, uh, that kind of perspective is really helpful. It's part of why I wanted to have you on. It's just that it's easy to assume these false things about the people in these countries, but by actually going on the ground, you you learn a lot and you see that that in many cases their just their views and 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 viewpoints are just being completely misrepresented is there is there anything else um from the conference that you think our listeners should know about well, I would say the uh, fundamental thing is that the u n is not going to quit we will continue seeing environmental conferences and more attacks on free markets and liberty so long as this institution is funded to the level that they're funded. It begins and ends with money. So long as the global warming machine continues to get uh, some incredible figure that I heard, I forget what it is, some uh, $4 billion a year by this administration alone that is going out to universities and uh, supporting the infrastructure of this entire movement, uh, it'll continue chugging along and looking for opportunities movements to you know whether it's through the un or local action or other institutions they will try to promote this agenda um and that's where the be- uh, battle begins and ends you know we've got to look very carefully at where our government monies are going and what they're propping up and uh you know we can continue to struggle so long as these uh liberals and these academic institutions and government bodies continue to get funded to the level that they are and can hold elaborate conferences like they did in doha well, I think it's it's great that, that you guys are going. Um, where can our listeners learn more about your work and CFACT's work? Uh, they can visit us on cfact.org, that's C-F-A-C-T dot O-R-G, or on climate change in particular at uh, climatedepot.com. That's climate, D-E-P-O-T, climatedepot.com. All right, Craig, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll uh, keep in touch. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be on your program. All right, take care. Take care. All right. Thanks again to Craig Rucker for coming on the show. I covered pretty much everything I wanted to say about the topic during our discussion. So now I want to talk about something that's that's really exciting, even though it's a response to something that's really bad. And the thing that's really bad is that on February 17th, the Sierra Club and 350.org, which some of you might know, that's uh, Bill McKibben's organization, they're hosting what they call the Forward on Climate Rally, which is kind of a mouthful, but they're planning for it to be, and they're billing it as the 
largest quote-unquote climate rally in history. Now, this is a ridiculous euphemism uh, because these organizations are against nuclear power and hydroelectric power, which emit no CO2, and unlike solar and wind are actually, or actually can be affordable and reliable. So what this really is, is an anti-energy rally. It's a blackout rally, and that's what we're calling it. And about two weeks ago, I saw that there wasn't nearly enough opposition to this for my taste, given this is a huge event. It's, it's centering around the Keystone Pipeline, which is an, a hugely important project. And it's, it's issuing a public and very, very righteously made call for the Keystone Pipeline you know, to, to never be built and ultimately for the oil sands, which are an amazing oil resource in Canada. It's calling for those uh, to never be to never be used, and so this really needs a major, confident, uh, moral opposition, and it hadn't been getting it. So, as I like to say, sometimes when industrial civilization is attacked, and when the people whose job it is to defend it don't step up, that's like the bat signal for CIP. So, we got on the case and we started what's called the Light Brigade. So this is the Blackout Rally and we are the Light Brigade. Now, if you go online to industrialprogress.net slash Light Brigade, you can learn more about it. You can sign up, uh, particularly if you're in the DC metro area, you can participate. And I think we've come up with a way of participating where every single person really gets to make a difference. And if we can get 100, 200, 300 people to go, even though it's a rally of a large number of thousands and thousands of people who will disagree with us, because of the strategy that we have put in place, we will be noticed. So without giving too much away, definitely sign up, definitely get in contact with me, and it, it, should, be, it should be good. What I can tell you for sure, and more than good, what I can tell you for sure is that at the core of it, um, Eric Dennis, Dr. Eric Dennis and I um, are going to do something similar to what we did at Occupy Wall Street. And we are going to um, have cameramen with us and we are going to be engaging and discussing and debating, uh, you know, discussing these issues with and debating everyone we can, including the higher ups. And if they, you know, if they want to run away, they can run away, but that's going to be caught by the camera. And at Occupy Wall Street, we just had a little bit of time. I had no voice. Uh, it was, and that still was a really, really effective thing. So here we're gonna have four hours. We're gonna have professional camera people for just the two of us, and then we're gonna we're gonna get tons and tons of other people involved. I think in a really creative and really effective way. So yeah, definitely check that out and. Um, we also, um, from our base, you know, we could really use additional financial support because to, to make the kind of splash we're trying to make uh, requires a lot of a lot of different resources from, you know, um, just from travel for people to t-shirts. I don't want to even get into all the things because I don't want to give away the full strategy in case anyone from Sierra Club is listening and is wise enough to pay attention. So, but... If you want to support it, which I really hope you do, go to industrialprogress.net slash accelerate, industrialprogress.net slash accelerate. You can also, at the same time, check out our really cool new accelerator page, which 
uh, tells you about all the different kinds of CIP accelerators. That's what we call, you know, what other organizations call donors. And, and you'll see, uh, you know, the, the really great things that come along with being a CIP uh, accelerator. And in this case, it's going to be contributing to what may be our, our biggest and most important project to date. So with that said, I hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you get excited about the Light Brigade, industrialprogress.net slash Light Brigade. We will be on next week with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, if you need to reach me, as always, question, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, go to alex at industrialprogress.net. Until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.